Welcome to LTN Rewind, where we take a deep dive into the archives of the Love Thy Nerd podcast network and bring back a little bit of buried treasure for you. Today, we're bringing you a classic episode of Humans of Gaming, hosted by Drew Dixon and Chris Gwaltney. And this is episode 168, an interview with Rob Davio of Hasbro Games. This is the Humans of Gaming podcast, an open and honest conversation about games, life, and belief. Hello and welcome to Humans of Gaming. I'm Drew Dixon. I am the chief content nerd at Love Thy Nerd and one of the hosts of this podcast. And I'm joined by Chris Gwaltney, my co-host. Hey, Chris. Hey, what's up? I'm Chris. I'm the chief executive nerd for Love Thy Nerd. And yeah, welcome to Humans of Gaming. We uh, love to find developers and people working in the games industry and get to know them a little better as people. Not just talk about the things that they make, but talk about who they are and what makes them tick. So thanks for being here. Yeah. But also, uh, we do talk about the things they make, just not only the things they make because the things they make are pretty cool. And that is definitely the case with our special guest today, which is Rob Davio. Hey Rob, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Did it, how did I do on your last name? You did, you did it great. We didn't go over it before we started recording. So I was wondering like, how, how's he going <laughs> to do? That's true, man. He just dives in. Yeah. yeah. How often do people get it right? Uh, if they don't know me at all, 5% of the time. Is that French? That It is French. Name? If you picture an X on the end, it all of a sudden just Ooh. reaches peak French. Yeah. yeah. But I yeah. tell people uh, the AU at the end is like uh, potatoes au gratin, right? It's that steak au poivre. Fancy. Nice. You can tell <laughs> yeah. I, I cook a lot. Yeah. Well, that's great. Are you into cooking? It's oh, yeah, that's my main thing. hobby. Oh, cool. Do you get into like the sh- any of the sh- cooking shows i do i love we just finished this season of the great british baking oh, show Oh, rob yes <laughs> and yeah. uh top chef is starting soon i'll occasionally uh, watch some chopped that's about it i've tried other ones over the years actually there was one on netflix which had really high-end chefs from around the world like international ones i can't mm-hmm. remember the name that was a pretty interesting one that's, uh, Great British Baking Show is my is my jam. That's oh, the one man. that's kind of like stuck with me. That show is on the, repeat in our household. Yeah, I, the aesthetics of that show are fantastic. Yeah, my wife said the other day, she's like, anyone who skips the opening to this doesn't understand the show. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. It's so it's it's lovely. It really I is. I think what we love about that show is it's like it's just nice. Mm-hmm. I feel like so many competition shows are like just cutthroat and mean. But, like, on this one, like, people are, like, helping each other, and they're, like, crying when people are leaving, and mm-hmm. it's just, like, so nice and refreshing. And even the judging, which can feel kind of brutal, is, like, it's just honest. It's not mean-spirited. It's just, yeah. Yeah, there's some and, joking to it. Like, you can tell that they feel bad when the person doesn't get it, like they're honest. And I, I tweeted out a couple weeks ago, I said, you know, future historians, that this is as good as we got in our yeah. civilization. <laughs> they're the Study best this, <laughs> right? This, yeah. this was us at our peak. Um, yeah. But it's just refreshing that, like, everyone's trying to do well and everyone's trying to win, but it's not that American style of TV with gossip mm. and nastiness yes. and who's the villain in this, yes. you know, reality show. And yeah. Um, it was just, that's what I like about it. They are the yeah, best of us. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So do you have like, what is your, what is your jam in terms of cooking? Like, what do you love to cook? I kind of, I, I say that I cook things I haven't cooked before, right? That I'm always like looking for different areas to cook. And that's not entirely true, which is I, I tend to cook Northern Italian, like new American. Yeah. Uh, I like Southwest, uh, sort of flavors. I live in new mm-hmm. England, so okay. I am a product of my time. So I just, Oh, it's fallout. So I made acorn squash, you know, bisque, mm-hmm. nice. bacon and chorizo toppings and stuff like that. Sounds amazing. Um, I just got back from a week in Spain visiting my daughter who's studying abroad there. Oh, yes. Yeah. Nice. And, um, and so we 
took a cooking class. She had taken when part of the orientation for her college had done a cooking class. And so she contacted the guy. So my daughter, my wife and I went, we just cooked in his home. I mean, that's his job is teaching in his home. So it's a very nice yeah. home. Um, right. So I was kind of studying the Catalan cuisine and what they do. And oddly enough, my favorite thing I tasted there is this, they serve with every meal or just about, it's just tomato bread. Huh. And, you're, and you're like, what? And it's yeah. like lightly toasted bread with, you just take a fresh tomato and rub it on it. So the juices soak into the bread and yeah, then that's my cooking. olive oil and salt on top. And instead of like bread and butter or rolls with something, you know, like sort of there's, it's just, I took a bite and I was like, well, that's nice. And then by the third day, I'm like, I need the tomato <laughs> bread. It's just so, it's so comforting. Yeah. 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 That sounds awesome. That's cool. Well, uh, don't want to forget to like frame who you are for our listeners. Oh, um, I'm Rob. <laughs> hey, yeah. Rob. So, um, I would say in terms of like people we've had on this podcast, I think you're by far the most prolific board game designer, I would guess. Um, trying to remember who all we've had on. Um, we've had some great board game designers, but you've made a lot of board games. How would you frame like, your work in the games industry to our listeners. It's actually this week is my 21st anniversary of being a game designer. So I was at Hasbro from right around Veterans Day in 1998 until 2012. And then I've been on my own now for a little over seven years. Um, I tend to make games that reflect back to what I loved as a game as a kid, which was role-playing games. Um, I, played a lot more role-playing games as a kid and even young adult than board games. And there's a long story I've told elsewhere, but I sort of fell, I got very lucky about getting a job at Hasbro. Um, and I certainly love board games, but I love games that tell a story and make you feel like you went on a little adventure. Um, so as my career has gone on, I've leaned more and more and more and more into games that, like have a strong narrative element. Not that I haven't done some, I've done kids games. I've done, I've done a lot of risk games. I've done trivial pursuit license games. Like it was really nice to be at Hasbro and get sort of like a steady paycheck to learn how to do this job um, and how to make games for people who weren't me. Like here's a, make a game for six year olds. Uh, okay. Yeah. And it took, it took me a while. So when I, when I left, I had a pretty good idea, I thought, of how to make games. And then I had to relearn it all over again of how to make games when no one else is around me telling me, don't do that. Yeah, and I think, like, just for our listeners who um, who are into games, like, I guarantee you've played a game that 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 you... I, if you're listening to this, I am guarantee you've played a game that Rob's had his hands on. Um, I mean, you co-designed Risk Legacy and Pandemic Legacy. I think I've heard people say you're kind of one of the first people to, to, to make a legacy game. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I came up with the idea. So, I mean, that's pretty, thanks. pretty cool. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, Depending I, on your perspective, thanks, or how dare you? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, like I said, it's basically just a role-playing game in a box, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. So that's, that's what I, what I do. Like, you know, you have perpetual character sheets and you say, okay, let's pick up last week. We were here and, you know, and you move on from there. Yeah. No, I also was, um, I did some design development work on the original Betrayal at House on the Hill back like 20 years ago or 18 years ago. I mean, the, the, the idea came in and it was like brilliant. And then I knew what Hasbro was going to make. It was too complex for the Avalon Hill market when I was with Hasbro. So I spent a lot of time, like a year and a half, like sort of reworking it into the shape it is now. Uh, but yeah, mostly known for legacy games. So what so I mean, and when you got started, right, you were doing stuff like Trivial Pursuit and Clue, Trivial uh, Pursuit. What else? Done some yeah. Monopoly games, a lot of Star Wars games. Uh, I did Star Wars Epic Duels. Yeah. Or co design that. I've done a lot of co designs. I like talking and working with people. Mm -hmm. Um back in two thousand two and then my company, Restoration Games, we just rebooted it as unmatched. It's yeah. like just coming into market now. Um, yeah, I, I was the editor in chief on Trivial Pursuit for much of last decade, and then I did a number of DVD games, which was kind of like app games before there were apps. Yeah, so like, like Scenic type stuff. Yeah, Scenic came out. So we did some Trivial Pursuit with DVDs, 
Um, and then I did a Clue DVD and a Monopoly DVD called Monopoly Tropical Tycoon, which I'm still very proud of, especially given the limitations of DVD technology. Yeah. Um, cause the DVD doesn't know what's going on on the board and vice versa. Right. Yeah. So, um, it was fun to try to get those things to feel like they were part of the same ecosystem. Yeah. That's cool. So how you said you kind of lucked into working for Hasbro. How did that happen? And were you, and maybe before you answer that, were you like a gamer nerd growing up and stuff? Were you always into this kind of stuff? Oh yeah. I mean, my mom was a big board game player when I was a kid, sort of the traditional board games, you know, like the mass market games, but I played a lot of them. And then I got to be 10 or 11 and I had kind of outgrown them, but then I went off to summer camp and discovered comic books and Dungeons and Dragons and sort of fell in love with adventure, right? So I'm reading X-Men and I'm playing first edition D&D and Mm -hmm. this was in 1981, played that pretty regularly through 85 and then I was starting high school and driving and getting a girlfriend and I was like, I'm too cool (laughs) for this now. I kept the comic books. But no one yeah. wanted to get together all day and play D&D anymore because like mm-hmm. yeah. jobs and other things going on. So I sort of backgrounded it, but it never quite went away. And yeah. then in college, a good friend of mine from high school, we like lived together one summer. We were both working in the same restaurant. We wrote this epic D&D adventure, which took us years. We started that summer and I still want to get it published. It was really cool. Mm. And so then I played that and I was in various role-playing groups throughout the 90s and making my own homebrew systems. But I was in advertising as a job, as a writer. And I realized um, I got an article published in Dragon Magazine in 1998. And I'm like, oh, man, nice. this is more satisfying than, <laughs> than, make it, you know, than selling yeah. forklift brochures. Um, uh-huh. And so I said, oh, I'm going to work in advertising four days a week and spend Friday writing role-playing stuff where I won't make enough money, but it'll be fun. Yeah. yeah. And so I started looking for freelance opportunities, happened to look in the paper, saw that Parker Brothers, which is owned by Hasbro, was looking for copywriters. And I'm like, all right, I'll throw my hat in the ring there. I'm a copywriter. Yeah. It'd be good to have them as a client. Was that your, like, um, did you study journalism writing in college? Did you? No, or, no okay. I've always just been a guy who has a lot of ideas and I can't draw. So I've kind of learned how to write. <laughs> nice. Okay. Um, cool. I have a degree in classical civilizations, a minor in medieval history. And I left college a semester early to go intern with David Letterman because I was going to be a television writer. Oh, wow. (laughs) That's cool. And uh, then I worked in television. Well, this sucks. And uh, (laughs) Oh, really? What did you not? Because I think for a lot of people, that'd be like their dream job to work in television. What did you not like about that? I don't like New York and I like LA even less. Uh, It's very very (laughs) cutthroat. Uh-huh. I like visiting New York. I don't like living there. It was a little overwhelming. Um, Television is very cutthroat. And this was before there was a gig economy. Cause now when I say this, it was like, this just sounds pretty normal, but I didn't mm-hmm. like the idea of getting a through, you know, like a 13 week contract here and then going in pitching a game over there and getting some money from a pilot and then punching up a script and sort of constantly having to hustle yeah. for your next job. Now I'm like, that's what I do all day long. But at age 22, back in the early nineties, I'm like, I think I just want something where I go to work. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, sure. And I was like, I don't want to be in New York. I don't want to be in LA. And I really loved comedy and it was making me not like it. Mm. Like when your hobby becomes your job, your yeah. perception changes. I was like, I just, this isn't what I thought it was. And there are times I look back because like I was born like the same week as Tina Fey and I was in a sketch comedy group in college and I arranged an invitational and a different group came over from BC. And I realized just earlier this year that Amy Poehler was part of that group. And so some of that generation of comedians, I was working in the same area or the same age. And sometimes I see them and I go, ah, what if? It could have been me. It could have been me. And I'm like. I don't know if I would have liked it, but that's one of the few things about the road sure. not taken that will get me like once or twice a year. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how it couldn't uh, just, you know, I mean, chances are I would have failed. Right. So I, I don't really know, but you did when you don't take that path, you were, you were a wild success if you had taken sure, it. Yeah. So you wrote some like material and stuff for Letterman. Uh, no, I was an intern. So I okay. photocopied the scripts and answered the phones. Hello, late night. 
right? And lie to people. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm, oh, you know, you're, that, re- you're really good at that. Wow. Yeah. I'd put them on hold and be like, so-and-so. And they're like, no. And I'm like, I'm sorry, he's in a meeting right now. Can I take a message for you? Like just lie to yeah. t- talent people trying to get their, yeah. their client on the show. Um, but I did sort of get a front row seat to seeing how it was done and reading the scripts yeah. and watching filming. And, uh, once or twice I would pop off to a different floor and watch the rehearsals for Saturday night live. Cause it was in 30 rock, just studio eight H versus six a. And, uh, uh and cool. everyone in there seemed tired and miserable. <laughs> yeah. Uh, huh. Uh, but I wrote like a spec script for the Simpsons that never got picked up. And I was in conversations with an agent at William Morris agency to represent me. And then I'm like, nope, I'm out of here. Thanks. Yeah. And so that was Hasbro was the ticket out of that or, or no, there was a gap that was in 92. Okay. And then I, worked, you were doing, I worked uh, uh, as a prep cook and just sort of kicked around and then got moved to Philly, got an advertising job, moved to Boston, got less satisfying advertising jobs. And then that turned into game design in 1998. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. So what was the, what were your first work in, um, in, in game design? What was the first thing Hasbro had you working on? So I walked in and it was the height of the uh, Monica Lewinsky scandal, just to uh, yeah. give some perspective. And there would, had uh-huh. been a game in the eighties called scruples. It was a lot of really awkward questions that would ruin dinner parties. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Um, and they said, Oh, we're going to reboot it because it's timely. Right. Cause right. of the impeachment of Bill Clinton and that scandal. And I know it's kind of hard to believe now, but Hasbro had just put out Monopoly star Wars the year before. And they're like, we think branded monopolies are the future. <laughs> like, and so uh, they said, you have monopoly Looney tunes and a reboot of scruples. That was my first day. And yeah, star Wars episode one was on the horizon. There was a different group working on it, but they said, um, they knew as a writer, like we might have you do a uh, trivial pursuit based on that. So, uh, so your first day in the office, you're like looking up, uh, facts about Looney Tunes so you can figure out what, uh, you know, what, what the different spaces on the board are going to be. And <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to think cause it was internet, but it was pre Google. Yeah. So I don't know if I, I was, I can't even imagine that. I was trying it's to think like, to how did I actually figure? I, oh, I, I said, okay, I made a word document. Okay. Houses and hotels become this. Here are all the, the spaces. What do they get renamed? What is money? Uh-huh. What is, uh, the community chess, the uh, cards and the chance right. cards. Yeah, yeah. And I created Railroads. that document. And when I left in 2012, that document was still being used by people for their like branded <laughs> monopoly. It was just two columns. Here's the standard number nine is what they call it. Cause it's literally serial number nine. Uh-huh. Um, and, and then, then here's the branded version to the right. And so I created that document. I came up with the idea that the properties were different cells of animation. And once you got a monopoly of cells, you could put it on TV then once you got four TVs, you could put it in a movie theater. So I'm curious because, I mean, I think given the type of games you work on now and the things that you've done in the industry, um, was that like, did you enjoy that or was it soul crushing? <laughs> oh, I, <laughs> doing, lo- I loved Monopoly. it. Okay. I remember that first year thinking if I won the lottery, I'd come to work the next day. Yeah. Um, That's a good place to be. That was a very good place to be. My, um, my first wife, I've now have a second wife. My first wife was pregnant with our uh, first child at the time. Like I was going to be a dad. I was a board game designer. I worked at Parker brothers. I was working on monopoly. I was going to get to work on star Wars games. Yeah. Like I had lived the dream. That's cool. Um, yeah. What happened was there was a Hasbro relocation about a year and a half later where they moved from the Parker brothers office to the Milton Bradley office on the other side of Massachusetts, about two hours away from each other. Hasbro had acquired both. And I moved into the Milton Bradley office and I don't know if it just the honeymoon period wore off because it was going to wear off, but it was this real physical change. Like it was attached to a factory. The building wasn't as nice. The corporate culture was different Mm -hmm. pretty much from day one, which was a year and a half into my career. When I got to Milton Bradley office, I was like, oh, this is a job, Mm. right? I worked in the basement for 11 years with no windows or behold days. Mm. I didn't see the sun. Yeah, that'll, uh, that'll affect you. And it was very interesting because the the factory was attached and we shared like the cafeteria. And then there was like office workers and factory workers. And you could really see the the sort of class difference 
Hmm. like between people who do shift work and people who are salaried and they were trying to not treat the two groups differently, but there was always a little resentment because salaried people you'd get yelled at if you were back to your desk five minutes late because people have to be on the line for the line to run. So the, the shift workers couldn't be late. So, and we're like, well, but yeah, but I worked late last night and they get overtime and we don't. And it was very interesting. I got sort of a front row seat to some real class issues. Yeah. Yeah. So you eventually kind of broke off and di- now you, you design games independently. Correct. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What was that? Um, uh, basically what happened was 11 years later, Hasbro moved again. This time they consolidated into the corporate office in Rhode Island. I had since gotten remarried. I shared custody of my kids with my ex-wife who was local and, you know, she wasn't moving and I didn't feel like not seeing my kids. And realistically it was, it was time to go. It had been years yeah. Where I was like, okay, I want to do my own thing. But it was a steady job with 401k matching and health <laughs> benefits. And yeah. I was up to four weeks vacation. Uh, <laughs> yeah, all so, that stuff. Is, yeah, uh, I was like, I can't in good faith with these young kids and child support payments, everything. Just be like, yeah, I'm going to go do freelance and hope it works out. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I tried to commute to Rhode Island or get an apartment down there. And after a year, I was like, no, this isn't working. It's time to go mm-hmm. on my own. And that was in... 2012. I appreciate you sharing that because I think like, I don't know. We live in this culture now where I think everybody wants to, to claim that they're doing exactly what they want and what they love. And they don't care about things like 401ks and blah, blah, blah. I think that's like our current like cultural attitude and the younger generation maybe. Um, But those things like they they matter on so they they I mean you know when you when you have a family like um you have to think about those things and you have to think about making sure you're you're around and you yeah. can be the, supportive and yeah. sort of the nature of being a parent is it's not about you yep mm-hmm. right and so I couldn't in good faith just say oh, I'm gonna quit and maybe scrape by for a year or two when I had a let's see, probably around 2009 or eight was when I would want to go. I had a seven-year-old and a three-year-old in child support payments and a mortgage. And I'm like, well, that's Mm -hmm. just irresponsible. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So then you try to work and like, how can I make this job better? Mm -hmm. And it was, it was, um, I don't want to say I was trapped because that's overselling it, but I realized just the parameters were, there were no other game. There were no other place I could take my skills without physically moving. There were precious few of those. Mattel is in Los Angeles. Spin Master was in Los Angeles. Like a big company that could pay for stuff wizards of the coast as a branch of hasbro was in seattle mm-hmm. and i'm like well my family's not going to relocate so how do i make it work here and you know mm-hmm. i would have years where it wasn't so bad and in years where i was thinking i'm not really working on what i like but it's not that hard at this point i could yeah. make kids games so i would just learn to cook or you know be a dad mm-hmm. Yeah, um, but it came to a head in 2012 because I I couldn't keep the job, and so I was forced to leave the nest. And it was it was touch and go for a couple of years in terms of. Hmm. Um, well, my wife also left Hasbro. That's where we met, and she got a a sort of steady paying job, and we that got us through that transitional period until it took about three years. It really took until Pandemic Legacy hit for me to feel like, oh, okay, I got a little cushion, you know, my yeah. company. Yeah. So I assume you made some games before that that didn't quite take off the way that you'd hoped or or maybe that you needed them to in terms of providing a steady income. And that well, kind of it, it just, yes, there was like one or two, mostly the first year after I left Hasbro, I left on good terms. I just consulted back to them. So I was just getting paid to consult and I was working on Seafall and a couple other games. And then I started Pandemic Legacy in 2013, but it took two mm-hmm. years before I got a paycheck. So when I start a project, it's about two years before I see any money. So it yeah. just took a while to fill that pipeline. And what I saw by 2014 was my consulting work was taking a nosedive and I could either spend a lot of time getting more consulting work or just bite the bullet and try to fill the pipeline for 2016, 17, 18, which, which I did. It just takes a while before those go in and not every game succeeds. Like Seafall came out big. I made it a decent amount of money, but then people didn't like it that much. The reviews went down and it just, you know, was one and done. And then there's other yeah. games. Like I have mountains of madness with yellow, which doesn't get a lot of buzz or attention, but twice a year I'm like, Oh, it's a decent. Dude, what enough. a hilarious yeah. game. Yeah. That game. Like I just love watching I people love play that game. 
I Thank think you, maybe yeah. more than playing it myself is just watching other people because <laughs> yeah. just the information you don't know and how ridiculous it is. Yeah, I, mm-hmm. I'm really happy with that one. And that, you know, that's like a quiet kind of seller. And I've reached mm-hmm. the point now, let's see, I, I get paid four times a year and usually around now. So I have my chart up one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I have 11 games that generate some income. Uh, the lowest one was $53. That was Seafall last quarter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you're not, you're not, you're not, uh, putting all your eggs in that basket anymore. So no, but, I, uh, uh, yeah, but you don't a, have to. So, yeah. And so and that's the thing is, as long as you keep putting new games out as other ones tail off, you can replace them. And if you put three or four out, maybe one will yeah. do well and two or three will do okay. And one will bomb. Um, but you know, I, I really been fortunate enough to be able to pay, pay my bills. And then this past two years be like, Oh, I can, I can put a little aside. Like I can't retire, but if I, have a bad year I can get by. Yeah. Um, but I haven't quite got to the place and I don't think I ever will where I just have, um, a ticket to ride or a pandemic or, a cards against me, like this mega brand mm-hmm. that just right. comes out, gets big, stays big, spawns a bunch of things that, that play off it. And then you're in a position where you go, Oh, I can predict my income for the next 10 or 15 years. Yeah. Um, that's harder and harder. It's harder to do in general and it's harder yeah. every year and you can't mm-hmm. count on, I'm just going to go to the plate and hit a grand slam three times in a row, right? Like right. there's, I'm going to buy the right lottery ticket. So I always count on a lot of games that do very nicely. Yeah. Um, well, if and, you do happen to come up there. with an exploding kittens like idea, uh, let us know. Yeah. We will, uh, <laughs> we'll invest in that. <laughs> yeah. You, you never, you never quite know. know. Yeah, um, that's true. Um, so before I kind of want to get, you know, uh, turn gears a little bit or turn, not turn gears, change directions a little bit and ask you some about, you know, growing up and what that was like for you and stuff like that. But before I do, is there like a game that you've made that you're most proud of? What, what have you, what's in your repertoire that you've made that you look back on and go like, yes, that's, I love that game. Well, the only game that I've had, not the only game, one of the few games, the go-to game that I've worked on in some way that I will play. Because usually you, you get to the end and you're like, oof, I don't want to see you for a while. I'll watch other people play it. Um, is I still really like Betrayal. Uh, I'm particularly proud of the work that myself and a, a lot of other co-designers and developers did on Betrayal Legacy, which came out just about a year ago. Yeah. Um, I felt like it did a good job marrying the Legacy idea and the Betrayal idea. And I mean, two completely unstable systems that had to work together. Um, yeah, that's no small feat. Yeah, I there's this um, recency bias, right? When you say, what am I most proud of? I'll just name things from the past year because they just came <laughs> out. And I'm like, oh, sure. that's good, right? So it's hard to go back and say, uh-huh. uh, you know, Monopoly Tropical Tycoon DVD was a good game because it really did some fun stuff with Monopoly and a DVD because it was 2006. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know if I looked at it now, if I would still feel the same, but I think I did a good job there. Um, I don't know if there's, it's, it's weird. It's, it's mostly, I mostly just stay very much in the present or two years out. Yeah. And then every once in a while I'll be at some event about to give a talk and people will say like our next designer, you know, did this and this and this and this and has done this. And I was like, Oh, that sounds pretty cool when you say it that way. Like, <laughs> but I don't really think about it. Yeah. 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 So do you, gr- you're in, uh, Massachusetts yeah. now? Yeah. Okay. And did you grow up in that area or where did you I grow grew up? up in Maine. So I've sort of always been a Northeast person. I've lived mm. okay. Maine, Massachusetts, New York City, Philadelphia. Yeah. Um, but what I've part been of Maine? In this, um, it's a town called Waterville. It's in okay. central Maine, which is not the mm-hmm. center of Maine. It's the center of the populated part of Maine. So still relatively far south. Yeah. Um, it's a, it, it was a town with 18,000 people. It has uh, Colby Colleges there. There's a smaller community college. And at the time, it had some factory work. Paper mills were still there, and there was a shirt-making factory. And it really was the end of the 50s quintessential American, you know, working college town <laughs> with a, yeah. a lot of jobs. And then as I was leaving, and in the past two or three decades, it's, it's you know, the factories have Just gone away. to hell. <laughs> yeah, to the point where, you know, the downtown Walmart came in on the edges and killed the downtown. Like, it, mm-hmm. it was just they went yeah. right down the checklist of what happened in America. Um, so it's a little, 
little like sad to go there. You know, I still get nostalgic, but I'm like, oh man, mm-hmm. this is where I used to buy my D and D books, and now it's just an abandoned store. But yeah. Colby, oh, Colby yeah. College kind of realized that there were people weren't going to go to school there if the town was this shell. So five years ago, or maybe they made a real investment in the downtown. They actually built like a student living down there and some offices and are forcing students to live on camp, like in the downtown with a shuttle, which caused stores to open up around it, which caused restaurants to open up around it, hey. which has caused some revitalization. That's good. Yeah. Um, in the town. Yeah. Did, uh, what did your folks do growing up? Uh, my dad, uh, was sort of a small town lawyer. So a little bit of everything. And my mom was a stay at home mom until I was about, in high school, I'm the oldest of three boys. So when my youngest brother got to be a little self-sufficient around like nine, she went off and she was the English department secretary at Colby College, which she had that job for like 20 years, maybe. Did you guys, were you guys uh, religious at all? Did you go to church or anything? Um, my mother was and and is uh, quite religious, a Roman Catholic. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad never quite as much. I can't recall him coming to church with us, yeah. but I, I went to mass um, pretty faithfully um, as a kid. And sometimes yeah. we would sort of, I don't want to call it cheated. It was really interesting. I, there was a hospital right across my backyard. Like I could walk there. And if we were really busy, we would go to the little chapel at the hospital where the doctors and nurses would mm-hmm. would go. Because one, it was closer. And two, they were all busy. So it was like a 30-minute speed mass. <laughs> and that was, <laughs> that was my uh, mom's right. version of we're going to church, but we don't quite have enough time to drive downtown <laughs> and park and, and yeah. go in. That's awesome. You probably appreciated that as a kid. I did. I did. I mean, I, it's funny. I remember the coolest part about church is when they would have a reading from the book of Luke because I was seven and Star Wars had just come out. Oh, nice. uh, <laughs> <laughs> you're like, oh, Luke, I know that one. Uh, yeah. No, it's funny. Um, I remember as a kid going to church and I just like hated it because yeah. I would just, you know, just have to sit there. And like now a lot of churches are different. Like they have all these fun things for kids in the morning. Uh, but Back then, it was just like, no, sit through the service, and I would stand up try when they say asleep. stand up, and sit down when they say sit down. Yeah, I do. I remember when I was in high school, so I had all the natural rebellion and snark of a teenage person. I got into theater a little bit, and my one day that I didn't have rehearsal was Sunday. My mom's mm. like, "We're going to church." I said, "I don't want to." I go to play practice the other six days a week. She's like, what is that supposed to mean? I'm like, you stand up, you sit down, you say your lines, you hit your marks and you go home, right? Like, it's just Uh the same thing. And Mm. she was not happy with that. Yeah, I bet she took that really well. Yeah, attitude, yeah. Do you remember, like, were you into it or at at any point did you, did you, would you have called yourself like a Christian or, or, or was it always kind of like, this is just a thing that we do and I don't really know what I think about it? more the latter. Like when I was a kid, I'd say my prayers before I went to bed at night, but it was a little bit out of, you know, fear of dying, you know, at age six when you went to sleep. It was, it was not from a position of, of love. It was from a position of slight, like, oh, you're supposed to do this because someone's watching Mm. an invisible parent. Um, Got my first communion, a seven, don't remember that. But I do remember by the time I was going for my confirmation, I I had a lot of doubts and I was Mm -hmm. trying to convince my mother that, I, I don't really want to be a confirmed Catholic because I'm not buying what they're they're selling right yeah, now. I have questions at that point. Fourteen, oh, okay. fifteen, and I remember her saying, "Just become a confirmed Catholic, and then you can make your own decision." <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> "Like that scene on uh, Nacho good. Libre when he baptizes yeah. his his partner when, when he's not looking, yeah, he's not ready." Right. Yeah, and I was like, "Well, that's kind of the point. I'm not confirming, but it was important to her." And her mother, my grandmother, was alive at the time. And so, uh-huh. I did it. But I remember thinking, oh, man, like, you know, all the, like, classes you went to to lead up to it and obligations. I was like, I'm just not – I'm not feeling this. I yeah. yeah, I have more questions than they're giving answers for me. Hmm. And, uh, and so, after – Do you remember any of those, like, questions or the core doubts? Um, well – I'm trying to think of whether I remember, I remember, I remember wanting to approach Christianity intellectually. I was mm-hmm. always like a analytical 
sort of person and a student who would like probe and ask questions. So I remember they had someone local come in who wanted to basically, um, it was a little fire and brimstone. Like he yeah. was a guest talker. And he basically said, I remember he said, if you, if you don't marry a Catholic virgin as a Catholic virgin, you're going to hell and there's nothing you can oh. do about it. Okay. That's wow. a hot take. And I went, why? Yeah. I didn't say it, but I'm like, yeah. Yeah. Really? Cause there's plenty of other Christian faiths, And I have friends with them who basically follow the same new Testament yeah. book mm. and aren't like, Jews, the children of the book as well, and this builds upon. And he, they were like hearing none of it, and I was trying to like expand it and say, well, what if you just lead a good life, right? How can there be all of these religions? Aren't they all mm-hmm. manifestations of the, the idea of ethics, mm-hmm. right? Like, the, like we, there's a pretty good sense if you look at laws and codes across history of things that are allowed and not allowed. And there's obviously things that are different in these different cultures, but we've sort of agreed that these are good. Like, isn't all that matters that your works and deeds, not the dogma surrounding it? And these were the sort of questions I was having. And when I tried to ask them, and certainly not as succinct as I just said there, because I was 14, I got a lot of, just read the book and show up. Mm -hmm. Right. And and that sort of drove me away from the sense of. Yeah. Almost like, hey, kid, we just want to get you through this thing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Just just get through this thing. Yeah. Yeah. And. And then as I got older and I studied, you know, medieval history and, and early Christianity through stuff. And I was like, well, the, the Catholic Church um, has not always been lawful good, so to speak. Right. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. there's a lot of things where you look at it and go, well, why did they do that? And you look at the Crusades and you looked at forced conversions and proselytizings and mm-hmm. the Spanish Inquisition. And you go, how can this idea of Jesus's teaching of turn the other cheek and we're all brothers turn into, you know, zealous crusades to you know, burn it all down. God will know his own right, right at, at some point. Yeah. And so, um, so I, I found that I become, um, pretty much, I don't want to say an atheist, well, I guess agnostic as I got older, like mm-hmm. I have no problem with people finding faith, however they want to find it mm-hmm. that goes, that guides their own conduct or holds back the forever fear of death that we all have. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of reasons to do it. And I'm like, that's great. That's your choice. I've made my choice. I, I might find religion tomorrow. I might see a burning bush and, and have a different opinion. But right now I, I just try to lead my life by the code of what I think is right. Mm-hmm. And hopefully if there is a gone, he or she or it is like, all right, you know, you didn't follow <laughs> this dogma, but you followed yeah. the intent of it. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. And then it would all be okay. <laughs> gotcha. So I, and this is like kind of a heavy question, but I just, you brought it up and I'm always curious. So you talked about how a lot of, you know, people of faith, it helps them with that fear of death. Um, is there something that like helps you with that, that fear of death that we all, that we all face? Um, just the natural evolution of my brain is to, I just read this last week that most people, people's brains are wired to think that death is an unfortunate accident that happens to other people. Hmm. Um, but I'm turning 50 in the spring. Mm -hmm. So I, I keep probing at that big fear. I start to, right. Um, I have a friend who's done a lot of palliative care Mm. and I said, well, when people know they're dying, do they get this peace as opposed to terror? And he said, dying doesn't make you a philosopher. And I was like, he's like, you got to do the work early and think mm. about it so that, you know, when that time gets closer, if you're conscious of it, if your brain's still working, right? right. Uh, you've done the pre-work to be ready mm. to be uh, to be done. Um, but it's it's a hard thing to approach to, because I don't... Yeah, to force yourself to think about because it's so unpleasant in a lot of ways. Right. And if I really had deep faith that I'd led a good life and therefore when I died, I, I had an afterlife to go to, mm-hmm. I, wow, that would make me feel so much better. Yeah. Right. You're like, oh, I'm leveling up and going to the next thing. And, <laughs> and, and I'd be like ready to go. But in my mind, it's going to be like, it just like it was before I was born. Like, I don't know, I go to sleep. Right. And the circuit shut down. Mm-hmm. And then who knows what happens? Do I become part of the cosmos? Is, is spirit and mind just a series of electronic impulses yeah. in our, our head? And there's mm-hmm. no answers. And you only learn when you die. 
so no one can give us the answers in my yeah. mind you know, by my face. So I'm like, well, I'll just try sure. to do good stuff while I'm here yeah. uh-huh. and then try to think about as the end gets closer, making peace with that as much as possible. Hmm. I'd be interested. It'd be interesting to talk to your friend uh, who does palliative care about how you do that, <laughs> that, that prep work uh, in the meantime. So I'm, I'm not quite as old as you, but I'm, 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 I'm I've, I think I've hit middle age now and, uh, yeah, I'm curious of you know how you how you prep for that. Um, yeah, I don't know. He actually, um, he and his wife just uh, went through a divorce very amicably or something, and then he went up to. I was like almost like he checked all the stereotype boxes. He went to Tibet on a, a mission with people to deliver medicine, like at eighteen thousand feet, and now mm. to sort of like clear his head, he is in a new Mexican monastery with no electronics or communication out for like the next three months. Man, he is in it. He is in it. He is one of the most introspective, meditative, spends a Mm. lot of time thinking about it. But he's even conscious of the fact that if you spend too much time being meditative and thinking about it, you actually just disconnect from everything. Like you go so far within that Mm. you miss the point. So I think this is just his transition from, you know, end of a marriage to the beginning of what's next. He's taking, three or four months to do some yeah. deeper resets. Yeah. Well, I there you go. That, you just have to go to Tibet and then to New Mexico and you'll be good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is the, just make two trips and you've got to figure it out. Uh, no, that's interesting. Um, so uh, you said you, how old are your kids now? Uh, 20 and 16. Okay. So you've just about, uh, you just about finished the whole, I say finished. Like I finished, finished what I call act, active parenting. Yeah, right? finished the first Where leg. You're finished the part, and now it becomes mentoring, right? In a way, yeah. and and you know, how do you transition to a relationship with your kids mm. when they've um you've if you've done what you need to do, they go off as adults and don't need you on a regular basis because they're fully formed, yeah, adults who don't know everything. Because they have yeah. to learn them and hopefully use you as a source of comfort and knowledge. Have Which is st- probably like both affirming in a way. Like if your kids don't need you anymore, it's affirming in a way that's like, oh, I, I must have probably done okay here. Uh, but then at the same time, it's probably. Oh, it rips your heart out. Right? Yeah, exactly. Oh, <laughs> right. To, yeah. to say I did this job well is to rip your own heart out and say, because I am not needed anymore on a regular basis, yeah. that I am a, a source of comfort, either checking in and, and texting or quick Skype calls or something. Cause she doesn't live near me or yeah. being a harbor for holidays and birthdays and special places, but that doesn't feel <laughs> good. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's like, don't you want to kind of flame out of college and live at home for six months? Like, <laughs> isn't that funny? How like so many parents, you know, dream about in a way, like dream about getting their kids out of the house and having more freedom and blah blah blah. But then, like, they leave and you're like, don't you, don't come you want to come back home? <laughs> yeah, I, I had a, a different experience because my um, I I got a divorce. Um, when my kids were six and two. So I've been a part-time mm-hmm. parent most of their life. Yeah. So I have periods where like I'm a parent for four or five days and then I'm basically just so not a parent for So that desire for them to be around is even greater for you. It was greater at the time and the transition when they left is not as abrupt. I'm not saying, please get out of the house so I can finally, you know, stop paying for babysitters and my grocery bill. It's like, no, they're Half the time here, half the time not. Now my son, who's yeah. 16, he's going to get his license in like two weeks. He's going to be mm-hmm. haunting the house half the time, right? He's just going <laughs> to be out yeah. and about. What is he into? Is he, is he, uh, are your kids gamers and nerds like you? Uh, my I, daughter. We say nerd as a term of affection, by the way. Oh, so yeah, I, I say that. Like, I couldn't yeah. stop being a nerd, so I went pro. Right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, my daughter's a little bit more of a nerd. Yeah. Uh, more of a, she's in theater, more of a theater nerd with a little bit of gaming. My son uh, is actually genuinely cool from how he dresses and he writes and records his own music. Dang. Nice. Puts himself (laughs) together. So he plays video games more. Yeah. Um, I can't think of the last time I played a board game with him. Yeah. Um, Also, and this comes as a surprise to people, often the last thing I want to do at night is play a board game. 
because uh, I've been from seven in the morning till yeah. five or six at night. I've been thinking mm-hmm. about them and working them. And then when I do play in the night, it's often <laughs> play testing what I did. So if yeah, I get a so free night like where I, work, yeah, it's like, I, I want to cook or I right. want to watch TV. Yeah. And, um, I used to play video games a little bit to feel like I could entertain myself in a different genre genre, but I sort of, I sit down now in the controllers. I'm like, I don't have the Twitch memory. Like I haven't played sure. enough to know the controllers instinctively. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, if I really want to game and get away, I go back to my role-playing roots because it doesn't feel like my job. Mm. Yeah. Um, this isn't to say I don't play board games. I Just a lot less than people who don't do it for a living. Right, yeah. Sure. Yeah. No, I think that's fair. Like, even with what we do for Love Thy Nerd, I, I felt that to some degree in the last year, especially. Like, I recently... Um, I recently got into mountain biking, so it's kind of like a new hobby of mine. And so that's made it to where I have less time to play video games and board games. I still have a board game group every other week. Um, But, like, part of it, I think, for me is that I needed something outside of gaming and nerd culture because so much of of what we do here is, like, it it does feel like work sometimes. Like, it feels like I have to keep up with this stuff to keep to keep the website going, um, et cetera, et cetera, you know, so I I get it. Well, I'm currently finishing up a presentation I'm giving next week at a tabletop network, which is, um, right before BGG con. It's a a work, um, basically it's a two day course on how to be a game designer. And Mm -hmm. the talk I'm giving is how to be a professional game designer. Like I'm not going to talk about how to make a game. I'm going to talk about how to make it your job. Mm. Yeah. And I start out right at the beginning saying, when you make something a job, uh, the job part follows. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And now it, 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 may, yeah. it may be a satisfying job, but it's right. a job. And so you right. have to decide whether you want to do that. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. when you do, you have to be prepared for your relationship with your passion to change because of money, yep. because of obligations. And you need to find a new hobby that mm-hmm. you do with your downtime. That isn't the thing that you're working in. Not that mm-hmm. you won't continue to do it, but you need something else that is money and obligation free. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a good, good. That's a good word. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, it's hard for people to find that these days in our kind of like gig, gig economy where people are, uh, working so many different jobs and like also their, their hustle side hustles are all like wrapped up in things they're passionate about. Um, so I think sometimes like culturally we struggle with like, making time for something that's just going to be enjoyable and I'm not going to get any kind of paycheck or it's not a stepping stone towards a paycheck. It's just something I'm going to do to enjoy my friends and family or to enjoy myself. Um, I think we need that. Yeah, like, we you definitely need it. I, at some point, um, said something like, what was it? When, when humans have downtime, they either make something or engage in some sort of storytelling. And as far as I can tell, everything falls into those two categories. Hmm. Yeah. Even, if it's, even if it's just sitting around a table and talking with your family, that's storytelling or mm-hmm. often playing a game or you say, oh, I'm going to go to the woodworking shop and, you know, make a new hammer handle, right? That you're either creating something or telling stories or be involved with it. And that's pretty much everything that comes down to free time. Yeah. That's interesting. That's you have a meeting to get to and we got started a little bit late. So I want to let you go and get to what you need to do. Where can people find you on the internet if they want to follow what you're up to? Uh, the best place is Twitter. It's at Rob Davia, which I'll spell R-O-B-D-A-V-I-A-U. I try not to post a lot. Try to do quality over quantity. It's, and often it's more cooking. <laughs> That's cool. And occasionally some mildly left-wing politics. Okay. I Good. live in Massachusetts. I'm very frustrated with the state of health uh, – health insurance in this country being a type one diabetic. Yeah. So, well, so I, I sometimes I lash out there. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's yeah, everyone's, there's everyone's disclaimer before you decide to follow Rob. Yeah. I just like <laughs> people sign up and they're like, Oh, hold on. What's, what's this going healthcare on? stuff? Yeah. yeah. What's this healthcare stuff? What's this? I don't live in Massachusetts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I thought I you were like just going to talk about pandemic legacy. I will. I talk about games, cooking, general parenting, and then occasionally like, why are there tariffs coming out on board games out of nowhere? Right. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. 
That's a little fair. bit of little bit of ranting. I try to minimize it though. That's yeah. all right. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on the show. Um, I, I will say, uh, Pandemic Legacy is some of the most fun I've ever had around a table with friends. So um, definitely, like if you if you're listening to this and you haven't played any of of Rob's games, go play them. Go check out Risk Legacy or Pandemic Legacy. Um, if you've played a little bit of Pandemic before, which I assume a lot of our listeners have, um, you'll pick it right up and you'll love it. And it'll ha- you'll have lots of memorable moments around the table. So yeah, and Pandemic Legacy. Um, Matt and I are done with season three. It's a trilogy. It's on the horizon. Oh, uh, the it's wait. on the horizon. It won't be out this year. Um, cause it's already the middle of November, but stay tuned. So if you haven't played but them, you have a little like, bit of time to catch yeah. up on seasons one and two before the there third one. And if you have played them, it's coming soon. Ish. Great. Yeah. Actually, I don't have a date, but I'm like, I would be surprised if it's not next year sometime, Yeah, but I awesome. don't know when. Yeah. Very cool. Great. Well, um, definitely go check out, uh, Rob on Twitter and check out his games and then uh, check out what we're doing with Love Thy Nerd at lovethynerd.com. You can see lots of great articles, podcasts. We have a podcast network. We have a comic book podcast called The Pullist. We have Free Play, which gets into all areas of nerd culture and uh, a lot of gaming talk on that show, and it's great. Um, yeah, I think that's about it. If you're interested in supporting what we do, um, go to lovethynerd.com slash give. Is that right? Partner. Chris? Partner. There we go. Lovethynerd.com slash partner. I should know that. Um, and, uh, yeah, because we, we need help. Uh, we need your help to do things like this. So if you really think what we do is great, go check that out. And um, you can help support this podcast and our website and all the things that we're trying to do across the country. So, uh, yeah, thanks, Rob. This is great. Thank you. Appreciate it. That's going to do it for LTN Rewind for this week. We hope you enjoyed taking this deep dive into the archives of the Love Thy Nerd Podcast Network. What are we going to bring next time? Who knows? You'll just have to keep tuning in to find out. We'll see you again real soon. And if nobody else tells you, we promise that it's true. Jesus loves you, nerd.